Describe the funding requirements that apply to a qualified plan. The promised benefits in a defined benefit plan are funded with annual contributions by the employer. How much is contributed is based on an actuarial cost method, which is simply a method for spreading the costs over the life of the plan. The cost method uses actuarial assumptions about a number of issues, most prominently about the future investment return and the characteristics of the participants. The assumptions do have an impact on the amount of contributions. For example, a 10% investment return assumption results in smaller annual contributions than a 5% rate of return. Now, before the Pension Protection Act of 2006, the employer could choose from among a number of actuarial cost methods, and the focus was on spreading the cost of projected benefits over the life of the plan. The Pension Protection Act overhauled the funding rules, providing a uniform funding approach and changing the focus to a year-by-year -year solvency concern, meaning whether the plan assets are actually sufficient in the current year to satisfy all of the benefits that have accrued to date. Now, more specifically, the rules require the calculation of what's called the funding target. The funding target is the present value of all the benefits accrued as of the beginning of the plan year. Now, this is compared to the value of plan assets, and assuming there's a shortfall, one part of the required contribution will be an amortization charge to retire that shortfall in the funding target. Now, the shortfall must be amortized over a seven-year period. Now, the second part of the required contribution is the amount necessary to fund the benefit accruals that are earned for the current year. Now, out of concerns about the impact that underfunded plans have both on participants and the PBGC, the Pension Protection Act included at-risk provisions to bring underfunded plans into a funded status as quickly as possible. The at-risk rules do not apply to plans with 500 or fewer participants. Now, there is one major exception to the minimum funding requirements. Plans that are fully funded with life insurance or annuity contracts that meet certain requirements are exempt from the funding rules. For many years, these plans have been referred to as 412i plans for the applicable code section. But then the code section was changed to 412e, so we now refer to that code section. Now, to qualify for 412e status, the insurance contracts must provide for level premiums from participation until retirement. The benefits under the plan must equal the benefits provided under the contract. The benefits must be guaranteed by the insurance company. Premiums must be paid on time, and there may not be any policy loans. Now, while the minimum funding standards create a funding floor for defined benefit plans, the maximum deduction rules create a ceiling. Now, the current funding rules generally provide a comfortable range or cushion amount from the minimum required and the maximum contribution that's allowed. The rules are intended to encourage companies to more generously fund plans in years that they can afford a larger contribution. Now, these rules are good for small employers looking for maximum tax shelter, since deductions can be accelerated somewhat under these rules. Now, even though the minimum funding requirements are most complex for the defined benefit plan, the requirements also apply to pension plans that are defined contribution plans, including the target benefit and money purchase pension plan. For these plans, the minimum required contribution is simply the amount required under the plan's contribution formula each year. Now, failure to meet the required contribution can result in a 10% excise tax on the funding deficiency. 
The minimum funding requirements do not apply to profit sharing plans, stock bonus plans, ESOPs, SEPs, SIMPLES, or 403B plans. This means that the 10% excise tax will not apply for failure to make contributions. However, if a plan document calls for a required annual contribution, the plan must still comply or be in violation of the qualification rules for failing to follow the terms of the plan. When a plan has a specified contribution, this amount essentially constitutes both the minimum and maximum allowable contribution. For discretionary profit-sharing plans, stock bonus plans, and employee stock ownership plans, or SEPs, the maximum contribution is subject to the limitations that we've discussed previously. That is, no individual can receive annual allocations in excess of the Code Section 415C limit, and the total employer contribution cannot exceed 25% of compensation of all the participating employees. To more fully understand how these rules work, you may want to review the examples in the book. They illustrate the interaction between the various limits and discuss the advantages of a 401k plan for a sole proprietor.